When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you this is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam Collins. The other guy is Jeff Lemon, back for another week of cricket conversation. And Jeff, it's not just us uh, here in the Zoom window today. We have a number of our friends from the Patreon page. Yes, uh, we have a, a bunch, dozens, several dozen people have come to watch us do the show, which is nice. I've still got, I've got someone in the waiting room. I'm just going to keep doing this manually because it'll feel like I'm, I'm, I'm bonding with people. So <laughs> Paul Harmer is joining the chat. Good Hello, to know. Paul. Yeah, so, so we've, got, we've got a few friends along for the ride today, which is nice. Uh, we feel like uh, when watching the IPL at the moment, we have a friend down the screen as well when Maxie's batting, uh, who briefly wore the orange cap on Sunday afternoon. Yes, we're doing our IPL spots on YouTube, so we won't go into too much depth on that competition. And I know that most people would have already engaged with our chat with Maxie last week, but uh, I, I put this on Twitter, and I may have said it on the podcast in the past, but watching Maxie bat at the moment, I get exactly the same feeling inside as I did when Dean Jones was coming towards the end of his career. Every time he was <laughs> in, you just knew how important it was. And yeah, I think it's nice at the moment that given he's our IPL correspondent, that we're very much invested in every delivery. Many people are saying that it's because he's our IPL correspondent, because <laughs> That faith was put in him. Before the, before the thing even started, we said, yep, you're it. And ever since then, you know, the pressure's off. He's been free to, to be himself, to play his shots. Um, he's got a nice team that all seem to like him. AB de Villiers is saying nice things about him, so that probably helps your confidence uh, as a batting player. And, yeah, away we go. Rach and I were walking around the garden centre with Winnie on Sunday, picking out some plants and being ever so domestic as Maxie was batting, and I was getting in strife for completely ignoring the task at hand in favour of watching him on the screen of my phone, but <laughs> no regrets. I should say, by the way, hello to everyone who's watching on YouTube as I wave to my camera. I copped some stick last week from Michelle Garland, who I think is in the chat window at the moment, saying that when I look at the camera, it can be a bit abrupt. It can be a bit like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making sure it's still on and I'm not really that engaged. Well, I'll, I'll do a better job at, at looking down <laughs> to my left. You'll get a different view this week as well, the mess of mm-hmm. my living quarters as opposed to my living room. Um, I've decided to shake it up a bit given we, we have um, friends with us today, a, a piece of art behind my left shoulder that Rachel's mum made for us. Each dot on the canvas here is a, a slightly different colour. There's no two dots that are exactly mm-hmm. the same. So 
uh, thank you to Rachel. And there's a lesson in, in that for all of us. Um, <laughs> have you considered going over to the camera like Australian Open style and just signing the lens <laughs> or like leaving a lipstick kiss on it or something? I've wondered how much, uh, how many of those lenses, because they give them away, don't they, at the Australian Open? They, they sign the lens and then they end up giving, keep going to someone in the crowd. Yeah, that- it, it must be a, a, a Perspex cover you know, screen cover that they just slot in and get a new one out, like Dexter with his slides of blood. You know, oh, that good reference. Very, very stupidly hides in the air conditioning vent. Like, yes. mate, they're going to look in the air conditioning vent, you <laughs> moron. Oh, I'm a forensic genius. Oh, look, I hid it under the couch. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, on the show today, uh, we are going to be talking to Neil Manthorpe, who is a friend of the show, one of the most well-regarded radio and television broadcasters in the world from South Africa, um, and also a forensic journalist on the game when it comes to all matters uh, CSA. Uh, We've talked about the shambolic situation they're in in the past, and um, there's been some fairly serious developments in the last few days, so no one better than manners to steer us through that. We're going to talk about the Mr. Sheffield Shield final up at AB Field over the weekend. Lots of politics to trudge through. Some nerd pledge, some bannermans, all that you would expect on a weekly edition of The Final Word. And I want to start, though, with a what I've called in our notes here, a, a job lot of sorts, politics. Mm-hmm. Broadly interpreted as politics. Uh, off the field stuff, shall we say. The first bit of news on this front was that Jodie Hawkins lost her job during the week in a restructure at Cricket New South Wales. Jeff, perhaps you could pick it up and explain what Jodie was doing for a living and until last week, and why this jarred so very much uh, when the news came out late last week. General manager of the Sydney Sixers was that job, you know, after, you know, Jody had previously been doing comms uh, for Cricket New South Wales and and for the Big Bash teams, got this job as, as GM. It went extremely successfully, two wins for the Sydney Sixers men's team in the last couple of years, and it, it it's not that she was sacked, but it's that the job was made to disappear in a restructure that said that they were going to have sort of professional list managers, but not have kind of general managers overseeing each of the the, the two New South Wales BBL teams individually. And so as someone who'd done a really good job in that position, my understanding of it is she was basically offered another comms job, you know, the job that she'd come out of a couple of years before to, to get that promotion and understandably was not very interested in that. So, you know, there are there are supposedly practical reasons for the restructure, but it's a, it's a pretty average look for Cricket New South Wales when the executive team reporting to the boss now is all male, you know, four blokes reporting to the other bloke and someone who's a very, very well-respected operator in the game is not at the organisation anymore. Yeah, the point they made, Cricket New South Wales, was that this restructure has been 18 months in the make since they changed chief executive back in 2019, I think it was. But nevertheless, the fact that Jody has essentially overseen two winning campaigns, it seems odd that uh, she'd be put in this situation where she can basically take her old job or, or leave the organisation. As Pete Lawler observed on Offsiders on Sunday, it's not as though she's going to be short of a job. I mean, she's going to be picked mm. up in the cricket industry sooner rather than later you'd imagine um, given her track record but it doesn't paint a good picture that a high profile administrator who's a woman in our game can do really well and still find themselves squeezed in a situation like this it's uh, like there was a there was surely a, a better way than, than putting her in this sort of situation I think maybe it won't be in cricket and that's really the that's the thing to be concerned about that when you've got such a sort of blokes industry um, and then you've got women who do really well in it and, and aren't given the credit that they're due, basically, they tend to go elsewhere and get lost to cricket and go and do something else. And why wouldn't you? You know, if, if you're 
being treated as though your contribution wasn't really that worthwhile in the end. Why not go and work for a bank or something? You, you probably get paid better and have less stress to deal with. Jeff, I'm sure you saw the, the fierce debate during the week around Crick Info uh, changing their terminology, uh, 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 cricket terminology to be gender neutral. And, and I say you would have noted the response because, I mean, it's, no, it's nothing that we haven't talked about for years on the final word. Mm. And in some respects, the journey that we've been on uh, as, uh, as a couple of journalists, I think reflects the, the where a lot of people have got to on this. Of course, it's not the first time that Crick Info have been involved in, in this. Uh, Andrew Wu wrote a piece a couple of years ago about the origin story of the term Chinaman, and that was enough to prompt them to revert to talking about left arm wrist spin as opposed to that. And Sam Bitbal wrote in an editorial that accompanied this decision last week that it was the same process they went through when it came to mankind. They realised that there was a better way of doing it. Now they refer to running out a batsman whilst backing up, or now it'll be a batter whilst backing up, backing up after this decision made last week. So it'll be no longer batsman, it'll be batter across the board, Jeff. And yes, uh, look, uh, we I think a good place to start this chat would be to say where you and I were, because we were adamant until a couple of years ago that it should remain batsman on mm. account of the fact that women who we respected in the game felt that way as well. Principally Izzy Westbury, who spoke at length on the final word about this probably in 2015, going back to the very start of the show. And over time, her mind was changed by Mel Jones and in turn us by her about the idea that there's enough women in the game who don't like batsmen that it offsets the argument that batsmen in itself is a gender neutral term if interpreted the same mm. way that we would say actor for instance, which is the, the most, I suppose, uh, relevant comparison. Yeah, I, I think maybe that was an England-Australia split as well because if you look at either men's or women's cricket, um, a lot of Australian players, men's players, were using batter yeah. for both. You know, Michael Clark did routinely, you know, Andrew Simons, these kind of players, they just said the batters and the bowlers and, and it, it used to give people who covered the game the shits you know why are they why are they using this americanism and and as australians especially we're always very angry about american usage you know we don't want any part of that sure we'll have their coca-cola and we'll watch friends and we're not going to use the same words as they use in friends if they take the u out of color we'll be very pissed off about it so uh, that it seemed like that was kind of the 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 established approach to it and yeah i mean i i think i went along with that i i thought well if you, it's about how you use the word, and so if the word isn't being exclusively applied to male players, then it can be applied to either. Um, and the more English sort of perspective on it was that batsman was sort of a term of respect, and to be called mm. that was an honorific in a way, and that you you wanted to accord that respect to women as well as to men, and and you know it, that makes sense to a degree, but all of that relies on people who already know what's going on inside the game you know if you've already got that context then yeah that does make sense but the argument about the the updating of language you know and and i fully understand people who get shitty about things changing because they think well you know i'm used to this and i like this being the way it is and why does it have to be different but you think about it from the perspective of someone who is outside cricket and has never been part of it and if that person is, you know, eight years old and a girl and they hear you talking about batsman and third man and all the rest of it, then it does sound gender-loaded even if you don't intend it to be. That's how it's going to come across to someone who doesn't have the context. And so that's the point that somewhere like Crick Info or someone like Mel Jones is concerned about is the people who might or might not come into the game or the people who might not feel like they're welcome into the game because the game's language is telling them that it's for men. And so in the end, it's a... 
it's a pretty easy thing to change. Um, it's a it's a doesn't take a great deal of effort to shift around the usage, and so why not do it? There's no harm in doing it, even if you sort of inherently don't really like the idea of doing it. Yeah, that, that's well summed up and articulated. I, I think that the most powerful part of, the, of, of Sambit's piece was rhetorically asking, you know, in a way, why did it take so long for them to come to this decision and answering that mm. in the next breath by saying that it's never too late to do the right thing. And I think that's where they've landed on this, that yes, it'll, it'll piss a lot of people off. And we've seen that a number of people have said they'll delete the Crick Info app and, you know, and so, oh, on, sure. and, and so on it goes. Fine. And, and that's to be expected. <laughs> But suggesting that language doesn't matter, which is the other side of this, that, oh, well, what does it matter? It's, it's symbolic, it's um, virtue signalling, it's, you know, and all the other catch-all terms. Remember, it used to be 10 years ago, it was, it was political correctness gone mad. We don't hear that so often these mm. days, but it's just a, a replacement now when talking about woke culture or, or whatever it is. Okay, mm. well, in, if that's the case, then someone better tell the ECB in the 100, because last year they, they'd gone out of their way to change the language of cricket, whether you like it or not. I'm not going to get into that debate right now. I mean, you know, it jars at one level that wickets will be called outs in the 100. But if, if language didn't matter, they wouldn't be taking such a divisive call on something like that. Sure, there's another side of it, a cynical side of it, which maybe that was to get their, their competition in the press for, for a number of days. But stepping aside from that, mm. um, language does matter. And the way that we articulate different parts of the game can be a barrier on more people accessing it. And I think that if this can play some small role in making cricket a game that more people feel comfortable engaging with, then well, what harm's done? I, I can't see a lot of damage and let's push on with it. Yeah, it's, it's a price to pay thing. And there is, you know, there is something about the sounds of words that you're used to using that is nice, you know, saying great batsmanship does sound satisfying in a kind of crusty Henry Blofeld sort of way. You know, I, I can remember being very, very strongly opinioned about this 20 years ago that, you know, all of this stuff was bullshit and you shouldn't be, you know, why we're chairman becoming chairs and all the rest of it. You just treat it as the name of the person who's in the job and whoever they are is whoever they are. And, and you know, that's that has a certain logical consistency, but it's a, a position that has evolved over time and that I've, I've ended up looking at almost um, 180 degrees the opposite over that period of time. In terms of uh, other shifts that, that could be happening in the game, a really positive one that we can all get behind is that the ICC are meeting later this month to discuss expanding uh, the Men's World Cup from 10 to 14 teams. This story bobbed up a couple of weeks ago in the Telegraph, courtesy of Tim Wigmore. We didn't get a chance to talk about it then, but it felt like a good week to quickly flag it now. So we know it'll be a 10-team event in 2023, as it was in 2019. But the support is growing for it to return to 14 teams, as it was in 2015 and 2011. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the chief executives will consider this at that next powwow that's taking place at the end of April. And the other part of this is that the T20 World Cup for men this year could expand to 20 teams in that 2027 to 2031 cycle which Mm. they're considering at the moment as they go through their various deliberations and look um, this is something that we've talked about so often over well ever since we started on the final word really that reducing the World Cup to 10 teams was regressive in so many ways and restrictive and I'm I'm glad that the thinking is now moving the other way because uh, we had that problem after the 2007 World Cup that India and Pakistan were eliminated 
in the group stage and that was a, a fault of that ridiculous system that they used to uh, incorporate 16 teams in the Caribbean that had nothing to mm. do with uh, how many teams were playing. It, it was a shortcoming of, of the way they set it up that year, which was why India were, were able to go home after three games. But there is definitely a, a better way to do it with 14 teams and it'll mean that, again, we can continue to grow the sport. It, it's quite comical though the the rationales being given where the you know the, apparently what was being talked about in these meetings were oh if we have more teams in the tournament we could help grow the game in other countries and encourage enthusiasm in other places <laughs> and you're like you did all of this in the 90s you had exactly the same idea you did the same thing you put it in place and then you threw it all out the window because you know India got knocked out in 07 and now it's like rediscovering it all over again it, it seems fairly bizarre that um, it's it's being treated as a new exciting idea but I suppose it's better than nothing. Yeah, there, there's the suggestion in the story that Tim wrote that there's an incongruity uh, that there are 12 full member nations and yet only 10 teams mm. make it to that competition and the same applies of course to the women uh, and, and the good news is that there's discussions around expanding the Women's World Cup from 8 teams as well at the moment so yeah the, the thinking is decidedly shifted in, in a positive direction. Mm. I, I think the next bit to get right though of course is going to be the format and um, we won't go into too much depth today but for mine... Um, oh. They, we won't let you. No. You, you would love that. You would love nothing no, no, better no. than 20 minutes on the format. I've, I've seen you do it. <laughs> Give me two beers and set me off. No, the, the truth <laughs> is they, they got the format right um, back in 2003, splitting it into two groups of seven and, and running a Super 6, which was improved between 99 and 2003. Where they stuffed up was was splitting it into four groups in, in 2007. So I hope mm-hmm. that they look back uh, at history of this and, and get to a place like that rather than simply going, right, uh, 14 teams, quarter finals eight in those because there wasn't enough jeopardy in 2015 Mm. and that was a shortcoming of that format so yes Jeff good news on the whole yeah, it's what you want to see and, and they're, they're treating the T20 World Cup as the one that can get even bigger and why not? Although whether that's still kind of split into the pre-tournament qualifying thing that's not actually really the World Cup, you know, not the real quiz, yes. then that's that's going to feel less satisfying if it's, oh, let's, let's have Nepal and Oman play each other for three weeks while no one pays any attention without them actually getting to play any of the good teams. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's always... Um, Grain of salt kind of stuff. Uh, Jeff, confirmation since we last recorded that India's women will play a test match in England this June. It had been foreshadowed or announced really by the BCCI on Twitter on International Women's Day as we subsequently learnt without consulting anyone, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) The good news is that they're they're coming out here uh, as part of a multi-format series. The test is going to be at Bristol, not Lords. Jeff, we need to start campaigning uh, from now until the next edition of the Women's Ashes in England, the Women's Ashes Test Match in 2021. 2021? Mm. 2023. Must Mm -hmm. be at Lords, but wasn't possible this time apparently. But yes, it'll be at Bristol 16th to the 19th of June frustrating that it'll clash uh, the back end of that test will clash with the world test championship final uh, down at Southampton so they weren't able to quite get the timing right on that as I understand it that's partly a function of the fact that they didn't know they would be staging this test match until well after they put to bed the rest of the schedule so that's mm-hmm. annoying but um, I suppose there's there's uh, the good news is that they're playing a test match to begin with uh, New Zealand are also is coming it overlapping to the back end or the, or the front end the of, fourth of the and fifth test. the fourth and fifth day of the women's test will be the first and second of the World Test Championship final. Okay. So the pointy okay. end, unfortunately. So Yeah. Oh, sorry, that, that's, that that's wrong. Sorry, that's, 
16, 17, 18, 19, fourth. So the, the third and the fourth day, of course, is a four-day test match. So day one and day two uh, will be free of will the be men. day three and four. Yeah, so that's um, right. Yeah, maybe that works in a way because maybe, you know, you, you get Indian media attention on England for that that men's test match and, you know, maybe it helps. I don't know. Yeah. There's a world in which it could be useful to have, you know, some – Shared resources, I suppose. Well, what's good is they're going to use the multi-format point system that they use for the Ashes for this mm. this series. So there'll be uh, three T20s and three one-day internationals. When New Zealand come out later in the summer in September for more white ball fun, it's three T20s and five one-days ending in the final week of September. So they're going deep into the season this year, the women, which is great. It offsets the fact that there was, yeah. so, there was so few opportunities last year for them to play. Why not play a test against New Zealand? Well, you know, and that I mean, was the yeah. other thing that jumped out at me is is that New Zealand haven't played one since 2004. And I reckon that's probably an NZC thing as much as anything. They don't want to play a test in England because it might make their players think that they should deserve to play test matches and we can't have that. <laughs> well, Susie Bates has said many, many times on the record too, not just privately, that she thinks it's, it's, it's a, a, just a disgrace that she's not played a test match. She's quite on the front foot about this. So mm-hmm. uh, that is a bit disappointing uh, that, that she won't get a chance this year. But no, I, I like the fact that the multi-format point system is being rolled out beyond just the women's ashes, which I should add a following straight on really from the end of the, the England women's home season. Although I, I understand that it might be played in January this time. Last time in 2017, they popped it into October. Uh, they might delay it because the England women will need to then go to New Zealand for the World Cup. So heaps of cricket is, mm. is the good news compared to uh, the pandemic year in 2020 where they really did miss out. But yeah, the one uh, slightly concerning uh, bit of commentary uh, overnight came from Australia, Jeff, and that was from Belinda Clark, who, I mean, all this momentum around women's test cricket in the last week or so following this announcement, and she essentially poured cold water on the idea that there'll be more of it in the short term from an Australian perspective, saying that her view is that the white ball formats are the ones that need investing in, that we shouldn't be diversifying resources into test cricket until, I think she said, until 10 to 15 uh, women's teams are doing well at 20 and 50 over cricket then we can look at sort of almost going back to test cricket once that foundation's laid but yes for this generation of Australian women's cricketers uh, look uh, let's hope they get a test match in England in two years time frankly we don't currently have 12 to 15 teams in men's cricket being given opportunities or treated as though they're actually worth playing. You know, we've yep. got about four teams who get treated that way. And if that doesn't exist in the men's game, it's a pretty ridiculous uh, target to say that that's how things should be in the women's game before you start moving anything else forward. Like this idea of always having to wait for the right time, you know, that's why the AFL was so sort of hesitant to actually back their league and have been so sort of half-hearted about actually backing what they did versus what Cricket Australia did in 2015 when they went, all right, we'll make the big bash and we'll back it in all the way. And they've done that and it has worked. So they've had their own precedent. You know, they're the ones who've demonstrated that these things can work when you put the effort into them. And yeah, look, even if you were only playing tests against three or four of the other countries rather than you know, more than that, all right, well, fine, that would at least be a start to to have it as something to be strived for. Yeah, and we we understand, everybody understands that more red ball cricket is needed at a domestic level to make test matches viable, and that's fine. I mean, in the WNCL, there's professional contracts all over the place now, and that's a great thing. And likewise, in England, after the, the regional structure was set up in 2020, there's never been a better opportunity for, for two- and three-day cricket at a domestic level. Jeff, are you feeling Olympic? <laughs> um, yes, am I? I've, yes, like like the gods of Mount Olympus, uh, <laughs> the twelve of them, 
the uh, what did they, they all got eaten by by their father, and then except for Zeus who had to murder him and cut them all out, something like that. This just reinforces that you went to a far nicer school than I did. The <laughs> Are you filling Olympics? A cool runnings reference, of course. Uh-huh. Two thousand and twenty-eight. It feels like it's on. So. There have been quite a few developments here. Uh, so 2028 Olympic Games in Los Angeles were announced uh, last year that it's going to be there. And now the steps that have taken place in recent times are that the BCCI have consented to send a team to Birmingham for the 2022 Commonwealth Games where women's T20 cricket is going mm. to be played next year, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, a roadblock in the past has been that the BCCI didn't want to get too involved in this Olympic shenanigans because it might obscure some of their bilateral commitments. It might mean that uh-huh. once every four years that they uh, can't yep. put together an entire program at home and thus they would lose money as the BCCI. Yeah. It also meant that they would have less control over their the running of their sport because the Indian Olympic Committee would have some say over things like doping, exactly. anti-doping structures and bans and reports and, and all the rest of it. And uh, the BCCI don't enjoy not being able to control everything that they want to control. Exactly, including the ICC. So that that's probably shapes the way the ICC has come at this in, in recent times. I know they were having a conversation around the 2024 Olympics probably four mm. or five years ago and they didn't quite get to that point. But, but here we are um, talking about 2028 and the fact that the BCCI have reportedly uh, said that they would be willing to send a men's and a women's team. And it feels like this is the floodgates opening moment. Um, the IOC have said repeatedly that the Olympic movement doesn't penetrate South Asia quite as much as it does other parts of the world. And they see mm-hmm. cricket as a vehicle, and rightly so, you know, given uh, the volume of people who'd be watching if India were, or, or any team in the, in, the, in the Indian subcontinent found themselves at the pointy end of an Olympic Games, it'd be an astonishing event. Mm-hmm. So all the bits and pieces will be debated, what format, how they do it how many teams and all the rest but the very fact we've got to this point and Tristan Lavalette our colleague on the freelance beat has been writing about this for Forbes magazine and he Uh broke a story saying that the ICC actually have an Olympic subcommittee now which is great news because Ian Watmore's on it now Ian Watmore is the chairman of the ECB so if a chairman of one of the big three countries is involved in this at ICC level that to me Jeff feels like some serious muscle as being Mm -hmm. flexed in Dubai from an ICC Mm -hmm. perspective, which, yeah, I mean, there are different views as to whether the Olympic Games should include cricket. Of course, it did once before back in 1900 where it was just England or, should I say, that was it actually, was it... France. Uh, it was France, but I'm not sure if it was called... It would have been called Great Britain, wouldn't it? Great Britain would have... I assume that's how it would have been in 1900, although I, I wonder mm-hmm. whether it was whether they were competing as Great Britain then. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They beat France in the one Olympic final. But yeah, the idea, Jeff, that it, I suppose it's the theme of the show today, isn't it? Growing the game. They've always wanted America to have a, a bigger footprint in cricket. Of course, there's the, the looming China story in cricket, which is fantastic. And if there's IOC incentive to invest in, in the game at a, at a local level, that's surely what we'll see if there's medals up for grabs. And that, Jeff, directly feeds into our conversation with uh, Roberto Moretti a couple of weeks ago and Cricket Brazil, who know that this is their way through in order to progress. Yeah, who are who are desperate to get Olympic inclusion because of the funding that will mean. And, and that's not just a Brazil thing. That applies to dozens of countries where sure. funding would be vastly increased and much easier to come by and, and could transform 
cricket in those countries. So, you know, really as far as a worldwide thing, it seems like an absolute no-brainer. Maybe Ian Watmore's on the committee just so that he can sabotage it and so the big three can make sure we need one of our guys in there just to torpedo it and make sure it doesn't get up. That's the other way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I suppose... You're, you're, your suggestion that it's in America and that could be part of the thing, part of the thinking. Yeah, that that probably carries some weight. The only thing is that it's not. So, so basically, what has happened? The story is that India have removed their objection. They're not going to get in the way of the proposal that cricket goes to twenty twenty eight. That doesn't mean it will go to twenty twenty eight because it has to be accepted by the host Olympic organising body. That's right. So, LA have, has to invite cricket, which means that. LA has to be convinced by Cricket USA, um, the new version of the body after the old one got kicked out of the ICC and banned for being complete absolute shitlords um, and pretty much did a Cricket South Africa. Now that there's new Cricket USA, they've got to convince LA to let cricket come to the Olympics in 2028, but it will be as an exhibition sport. It'll yes. be as a one-off exhibition sport. And then if they impress, if they do a good enough job, if the Mighty Ducks come through, then it might become a permanent sport from 2032 on. So, yeah, that's that's the way it's going. There's you know Nothing really tangible has happened except that basically India have said, we're going to stop getting in the way. But who knows? They could have a change of governance in a couple of years and completely reverse course, as they often do about many things. Yeah, it's just a price signal. I mean, the Brazilian women's national team having full-time contracts it was kicked along by this Olympic dream. Imagine what might be possible in other associate and affiliate nations if they think that there could be a route through the Olympic Games for them. So mm. it's definitely good news. A week of predominantly good news. And also a week, Jeff, of some retirements at Australian domestic level. Delissa Kimmitz so has long, decided to uh, pull the pin on her international and domestic career. Uh, mm. What a great story Delissa Kimmitz has been, of course, debuting as a teenager back in mm-hmm. 2008 and taking this career break, uh, I think, think from memory she went straight to the UK worked in a pub I interviewed her about this a number of years ago and then kind of returned to the game when semi-professionalism was taking off back with the um, the Brisbane heat I suppose when the WBBL started but the Queensland fire mm-hmm. as well and one thing led to another and by 2017 after that disastrous World Cup campaign for Australia they're like what about that really dependable all-rounder who used to be an opening bowler mm-hmm. 10 years ago let's give her a go again and uh, and she ended up winning a couple of World Cups the uh, the performance three I think three was it okay certainly in mm-hmm. 2018 it stands out to me that she was an outstanding contributor from from the very start of that competition in the Caribbean all the way through to the final. One of the best fielders in the team as well. Won a couple of Ashes series in 2017 and 2019 and, yes, retires at age 32, I think it is. But, um, yeah, what a fantastic contribution across a long period of time in the game. And, yeah, one of the more interesting careers, I suppose, because she had that career break in her 20s before coming back to it because there, there was a, a career to be had, which there wasn't necessarily before. Yeah, Delissa Kimmins, also one of the, but probably the cricketer who sounds most like a kind of cake, you know, in some way, every time that came, just like a brand of cake, you know, I thought if you, if you were making cakes, that's what you'd want to, <laughs> you'd want to name them, mm, a Delissa Kimmins, a Kimmins pie, maybe something like that. Anyway, uh, she didn't bowl pies, um, she bowled really nicely, one of those, one of those kind of Sarah Ailey style, you don't know why she's so hard to hit, but she's really hard to hit, <laughs> and everybody thought that they could hit her, and nobody could. Yes. Yeah pretty much the story of her career well, well, um, I, I like that the way that she I mean you look at it, uh, the longer lens of her career in 2008 she was a fast bowler in context I mean, she was one of the faster Australian bowlers that's what she did 
And now, I mean, obviously, we followed the second half of her career very closely. She is not a fast bowler. She's a, a clever, cagey, medium pacer. A fast bowler is Darcy Brown, who is coming through and has got herself a contract. So they made the, yep. the Kimmitz announcement when relaying who the 15 uh, nationally contracted players would be for uh, the next 12 months. And yeah, so Darcy Brown, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost reflective of a, a changing of the guard as far as the sorts of cricketers who are now getting these opportunities to play for Australia in, in the next generation. Yeah, and I, I think that's quite nice. So Kimmitz, who was a fast bowler, is bowing out as a, a bowling all-rounder, and she's essentially been overtaken by Darcy Brown. Brown, who has the world at her feet. Yeah, Darcy Brown, 17, just got on her first tour a few weeks ago. I, I do think it's a bit rude to Molly Strano, who's always called in. She hasn't got a contract, and she's always called in as the replacement. You know, she's never in the squad, but then someone gets injured, <laughs> and they go, oh, actually, Molly, parachute into the 11 and do a job for us, be dependable, and she is. And they're like, okay, cool, see you later. See you next time. But <laughs> yeah. I guess it's hard because you look at the 15 contracted players. I mean, Georgia Wareham, Jess Jonathan, Ash Gardner, Sophie Molyneux. I mean, those four spinners picked themselves. You can only have so many spinners mm. in that 15, I suppose, in, in the case of Molyneux and Gardner, especially they're more all-round options. But, but still, that might be why Strano finds it hard to get herself a deal. Yep. Alex Doolan has gone as well. Uh, the man they named, Dools. Good nickname work there, Australia. Really nailed that one. Um, following the Chad is great and, and Callum Ferguson as uh, test players. Who, uh, who disappeared out the door, one of those, you know, long career, 35 years old by the time he, he called it a day, um, had his moment, had his moment in South Africa in the baggy green, uh, being a first drop. It's not a very easy job, but he tried it. He gave it a go and they can never take that away from him. Yeah, and made nearly 6,000 runs for Tasmania, so the eighth most for the state in Shield cricket. The 89 on Dubu is 11 runs away from, from being part of that very special club of uh, centuries at the first time of asking there at the second innings at Centurion. He made it three to a second to a, I forgot about this bit, Jeff, but he, he played the three tests in South Africa and then was also there at Dubai Sports City in, in 2014 before he eventually mm. made way. But yeah, he had a couple of lean seasons after that Australian experience. Bounced back magnificently towards the end of his career with a massive double century against Victoria on the G in 2017. Made twin tons just last season, so he was still a valuable contributor for Tasmania, part of uh, their Shield success uh, a decade ago as well. But yeah, interesting that he said he was at peace with it all and had made the decision at Christmas even. He sort of realised that at age 35 that the time was right for generational change at Hobart and he was happy to make way and move to the next phase of his life. But yes, a, a baggy green and and earned that as well because the couple of years before it, he was one of the most attractive players in Australia and, and had his opportunity. Now, the, the county cricket over in England, you uh, missed out on an, another hat-trick, Adam. I, uh, I've i got to say, I was excited when I, I saw the scorecard. I saw things coming up on the internet. They said, Hattrick. They had said, a bus. They said, Middlesex. I was like, hang on. Those are the games you're yeah. doing. You must have been there. You weren't there. No, I'm not doing away games, so my streak continues. I often get um, messages around one-day international hat-tricks, and I'm like, no, no, that's not mm. a problem. I've, I've actually commentated a couple of those. It, it's Red Bull, first class or test. I've, I've never seen one, and circumstances have conspired against me again this week because I wasn't at Hampshire, not doing away games for Middlesex. Muhammad Abbas, though, what an amazing performance. Nine for 37 from 36 overs for the match, including six for 11 from oh. 11 in the first innings. He had his five-wicket bag five for three at one stage after 17 deliveries which is just crazy completely decimated Middlesex who uh, they ended up beating quite comfortably later in that 
that game, Jeff, Ian Holland made a pretty important contribution as well. So Ian Holland, I suppose, relates to what we were saying before about USA cricket. But from an Australian perspective, uh, people might remember him as having one Australian cricket superstar back on Foxtel in 2012, got himself a Victorian deal out of that reality television show, was on the books for a couple of years, played mm. one Shield game, moved to the UK to play um, initially club cricket, got picked up by Hampshire he's got a UK passport, so he's able to play here on the back of that. But he's also got an American passport because that's where he was born, and thus he's currently a USA international because they're playing one-dayers right now as part of that second tier of the of the one-day, what are they calling it, the one-day Super League. He's in the division below that but it's got one day international mm. status anyway for Hampshire this week made 64 and 146 not out opening then picked up three for 19 with the ball so Jeff he feels to me as though someone we desperately need to get on the final word I, I interviewed him last yep. year for a column and he's a his story is one of the best going around at the moment I think that he should start a podcast himself with um Johan Wagner the, uh, the, <laughs> that the is guy so got picked up for Port Adelaide <laughs> after um winning the recruit yes. which was the same tv show but for Australian rules football you know, they have some stories, you know, they could, I don't know who they'd interview, but the, the two of them together, sparks would fly. I, it'd work. Yeah. I think it would. I, I love that recruit show, certainly the first season that had me, had me hooked. I think for the time being though, Ian Holland, I'm sure they call him Dutchy, even if he doesn't want to be called Dutchy. It being Australian mm-hmm. cricket, if your last name is Holland, you need to be called Dutchy. Ian Dutchy Holland, he'll have to settle with the Seba Super Performer of the Week award, which I think is right to go his way. You need to know when to declare and retire the way you want. Visit sebasuper.com.au to find out how, or better still, sebasuper.com.au forward slash the final word and get some information about sorting out your super. Ian Holland, I think he's 31 now, so he won't be retiring mm-hmm. anytime soon, especially now that he's um, got this opportunity to be an international cricketer. So maybe he'll hang on until 2028 and, and play at the Olympic Games for America in Los Angeles yeah. when he's, uh, I yeah. suppose he'd be 38 like, uh, or 39. Like Anderson Cummins, was it, who came back yep. and played for Canada? Um, right. There are opportunities there if you want them. So he'd be he'd be a UK-American-Australian nicknamed Dutchie. Um, yeah, good, <laughs> good work, Australia. There was also, speaking of disappointments, the, the Bannerman that didn't quite happen. Oh. Uh, we talked about this. We talked about this on Storytime, I think, when we were recording just before it would have been relevant where you had a team eight wickets down and as long as the two more wickets fell without another run being added, then uh, Scotty Borthwick, was it, would have yeah. got a Bannerman. It would have Bannermaned for 100 that he'd made earlier. But that didn't happen. They ruined it. The yeah, it was tantalising, wasn't it? He, at Stumps, they, he, he was, well, he'd made 100 batting at number three out of eight for 148. They needed to lose both wickets on 148 on the second morning, mm-hmm. but it edged through the slips and it ran away. In the end, they added about 100-odd for the last two wickets and took a healthy first innings lead against Essex at Chelmsford, a lead of 163, uh, and they still lost. Essex won by 44 runs, the champions. They know how to fight back, much as it was with Somerset at Lords last week against Middlesex, a, a healthy first innings deficit, but got the job done. Simon Harmer, Jeff, you won't be surprised to hear another 10-wicket match. He's a freak, that bloke. Speaking of freakish spinners, uh, Matt Parkinson, 
I'm sure you would have seen his ball of the century, as everyone mm-hmm. tweeted simultaneously, a contender at Old Trafford bowling Adam Rossington on Friday afternoon. I, I quite like the fact that Simon Kerrigan, his old teammate uh, from Lanks, who now, of course, plays at um, North Hants, was watching from the non-strikers end, and he kind of threw his hands in here like, what are we meant to do with that? But yes, uh, the leg spinner Parkinson, who spent uh, all winter watching England play from inside the bubble but never getting an opportunity, has, uh, yes, he, he's gone viral. Yep, James Bracey as well, who I've heard people starting to talk about as um, yeah. coming in for England. As though it, is this is this in a non folks? Is Ben folks now persona non grata because of India? Or is uh, he uh, no, or, I think this is James Bracey's specialist bat chat. Uh, so okay. he, he, and like I mean, some they you know if they I've beat heard Somerset. about him as backup keeper, like the keeper who would play if Butler's in the IPL sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, like, you know, oh, well, he, he's works. certainly a wicket keeper. He keeps for Gloucestershire, and, and they beat Somerset in the, in the derby. No mean feat, uh, an away game as well. He made one hundred and eighteen and eighty three to to lead Gloucestershire to victory. But yeah, I think that he's reached that stage where. Yes, he's the sub-keeper, so to speak, but he, he might be in contention for a specialist batting spot if, if uh, I suppose, if injuries broke his way, as it were. But he'll need to get past players like Ollie Pope, who for Surrey made 245 against Leicestershire mm. out of Surrey's. I think it was 672 for five declared. So a road there at the Oval. But it's amazing to think that Pope, when he goes back to that next level down, he's now got three double tons for Surrey and averages in excess of 70 for his county. So you can see why mm. he was... Um, put on the fast track a, a couple of years ago. They didn't have enough time to win the game against Leicestershire. Though. They fell, I think they fell about five or six wickets short with Leicestershire doing well in the second innings. Looking at Surrey in terms of the other England performances in their one innings, Rory Burns made 36 and Ben Folkes backed up his century in round one uh, with 87. So he started the campaign well. Uh, Joe Root made 100 as well for Yorkshire. He probably needed that. He had started slowly for Yorkshire and got himself a second innings 100 against Kent. Adam Blythe, the name you probably haven't thought of for a while, Jeff, made 97 and 116 in that game. He's only 33. He looks like he's 53. But mm. uh, He I looked mean, like he was 53 when he was playing. And yeah. that was... Was he playing in 2013 or 15? 15, 15. So he played the seven tests of that summer. But he should. Feels like a long time ago. It feels like a very long time ago that I was watching Adam Lythe bat. Well, that's why I checked his age. Adam Lythe was was part of my world. Yeah, well, I saw all their scores. I wonder how old he actually is, thinking he might be 36 or 37, but 33, Mm. so not completely out of contention. We nearly had some history, uh, and this was brought to my attention by Chris Arkell on the Patreon page uh, in the Glamorgan Sussex games. 18 LBWs, which is two away from the record. And that was out of 32 wickets in the match. So eventually uh, Sussex won two down in the fourth innings. They chased down what they were set about 160-odd. But at one stage, we're thinking, well, eight wickets to go, already 18 leg befores. So they're, they're, they're a mm. decent chance here of um, going through that, that record, which I think a couple of teams have taken 20 leg befores in a game but a, a stack of them were Ollie Robinson watch this space here he took 9 for 78 for Sussex in the second innings against Glamorgan he was in the England bubble last year he probably would have played if um, they ever had an injury in that stretch of time he was sort of next cab off the rank kind of thing tall accurate not express paced you know we're talking 130 135 in kilometers 80 odd mile an hour but he gets fantastic bounce from his six foot seven frame he's kind of an angry dude as well I, I saw him uh, last year uh, when he played against uh, Middlesex and the way he carried on I think mm. they might like that I reckon as far as a, a, a sort of competitor to bring to Australia later in the year so they got the points despite the fact that uh, Kieran Carlson 
Nelson made twin tons for Glamorgan, the 22-year-old Welshman. Always like it when we see young Welsh cricketers doing well. There were some great pictures at the end of the Derbyshire-Worcestershire game with nine fielders around the bat. They ended up falling two wickets short. I, I did put in a polite inquiry to the ECB to ask whether that might have been to do with the fact that they lost 80 minutes for the Prince Philip funeral on Saturday. By 80 minutes, I mean they took an 80-minute tea break, but apparently, mm-hmm. notwithstanding the, the chat on Twitter, they did make up all the overs in that game. So Prince Philip right. didn't contribute to Derbyshire not getting the last two. But we always love seeing men around the bat with you know wickets to get, men on their knees around the bat waiting for any opportunity. <laughs> um, yes, just the quiet, uh, the quiet funeral. I like seeing those reports where that wanted a low key funeral, and then there were all these shots of like, you know, hundreds of soldiers marching in formation <laughs> in a big castle, and you're like, oh yeah, just having a quiet. I'm just having a quiet night. Just having a quiet. Fast forward. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, yeah, to give you an insight, people, into how we make this show, I woke up to several text messages from Adam the other morning with that information about the 18 LBWs so far in the match, <laughs> nine wickets to go. The first class record is 20. That was the first thing in the morning. I was like, all right, good. I'm glad you're having fun. I think you actually, um, I think from memory, you might have picked that up when you were having a big night yourself at a wedding. So it was something you were able to track. Maybe I was still awake. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, no, I probably was just before. I, went. I, I saw it twice. I saw it before I went to bed and afterwards, and I was just as surprised to see it the second time. In that um, Warwickshire, Derbyshire game, Matt Critchley uh, he's uh, very much uh, a man that's being talked about around county circles at the moment. Made 109 and 84 and also eight wickets in the match. He started the season brilliantly. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Warwickshire uh, chased down 333 to beat Knotts. Mm-hmm. Stuart Broad was in that attack for Knotts, so no mean feat. He took five wickets in the game broad. But Tim Bresnan, our Warwickshire player, 68 not out in the chase, got the job done. Thought you'd like that. How many counties has he played for? It seems like most of them. Uh, no, just the two, but, it, but it's more the fact that he's having this sort of you know, late career. He's still going around. Uh, he's probably, he's probably 35 now and, and as much a batsman as he is a bowler uh, in the latter part of mm. his career. So that's the wrap of the county round. We haven't quite worked out how we're going to do county cricket week in, week out. We had a couple of notes in the Patreon inbox last week asking whether we would give it as much attention as we have the Shield, but we might just pull out these well, nuggets. No, once. because there are six Shield teams yeah. and there are 18 county teams. Yeah, so it's, not frankly, quite, yeah. Yeah, it's not quite possible to go into that level of depth, but we might do as we have here and, and pull out a few highlights from each game through the week. And on that note, we'll pause, Jeff. Uh, we'll take a couple of minutes to discuss a magazine that we love ever so much. And after that, we'll be back with South African cricket commentator and journalist Neil Manthorpe. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Once a month, it happens. A monthly magazine is released. More than one monthly magazine. A range of monthly magazines are released once a month, if they indeed live up to their name. But this particular one is the one we're interested in. It is the Wisdom Cricket Monthly. And uh, it is leading off. Its cover story is all about somebody who a lot of people in England have been excited about a lot in in recent times. He had a, a couple of comical moments in the recent England-India test uh, matches. His name is Daniel Lawrence. He can probably do more things aside from being funny um, on the cricket field. There are times when he does things that are good as well, I'm told. Uh, and he chatted to Phil Walker, the editor, about exactly that, Adam. Yeah, it's a great piece. Phil sent it to me the other day to have a look at. So he spent a couple of days with Dan at Essex during what must have been their round one match, I reckon. And some great 
photos which you can he kind of they set up there in front of the gates there at Essex and great fantastic striking cover with him holding two cricket bats over his shoulder and yeah it's it's a moment in time piece it's a piece that I suppose we'll reflect upon when he gets more opportunities for England but it looks at what he was able to achieve there on his test debut in Sri Lanka and then at the very end of the tour in the final test match where he made I think twin 50s wasn't it in the fourth test against India and it includes some commentary from Tom Wesley who kind of crashes the interview so Phil's talking with Dan and, and in walks his captain mm-hmm. and I think he's his housemate isn't it Tom Wesley walks in and starts telling Phil how great Lawrence is and Phil captures him beautifully indeed the other day we were playing football as we do on a Friday night uh, a few of us and Phil was after that watching um, Lawrence bat in the second innings for Essex in their game against Durham and he was sort of so invested in it you know how at the top of the show I talked about the way that you and I watch Maxi that's Phil with Dan Lawrence Mm. so nice to observe that having read the article a couple of days ago so that's off the front as the cover this month Yep, uh, and then it's it's the big county cricket uh, section as well. There's a new section that they put in called the County Files. Uh, it will cover all 18 counties. So if you're a person who is sending us messages saying we need to cover all 18 counties, no, we don't because it's in Western Cricket Monthly. They've already <laughs> done it. There is no point going over the same ground twice. Exclusive interviews in the section this month with Scott Borthwick, who we were just talking about, the near bannerman Hassan Azad, who's opening the batting for Leicestershire. Um, Mark Robinson, the Warwickshire coach. Robbo coming back to the domestic yep. circuit after running the England women's team very successfully for a number of years and uh, a whole lot more. I saw Robbo uh, during the winter. He lives in the street next to Rachel's parents. I saw him having a run one day. Mm. I'm like, g'day, Robbo. How's it going? Good. <laughs> Off the coach. He's like, are you following me? Off the coach Warwickshire. I went outside and that, that Adam Collins was out there. <laughs> he won't leave me alone. He's a very nice man, Mark Robinson. He is, he is. Uh, I forgot to mention, they, by the way, when talking about Dan Lawrence, that he talks about Virat Cole and he, and, he, and he dips into some great cricketer speak. He describes him as the biggest alpha you've ever seen in your life. So nice that podcasting from Australia is starting to, to penetrate the, the mainframe over here on the county circuit. <laughs> uh, and yes, so that county section in the magazine is going to be a big part of it through the course of the summer. Chris Broad is in there talking about his colourful career in the game. That'll be worth reading, I reckon, because, yeah, Chris Broad has done, uh, you know, an Ashes-winning uh, batter who made three centuries in the 86-87 mm. series, but also a rebel tourist and then a distinguished match referee and also the father of Stuart. So, yeah, kind of a complicated yeah. and, and rich life in the game. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that interview. The man without whom the song He's Big, He's Bad, He's Better Than His Dad, Stuart Broad, <laughs> would, would not either be possible because of the existence of Stuart but also would not make any sense because his dad, you had to know who his dad was. I suppose you could say it about, you know, most cricketers were better than their dads except maybe Arjun Tendulkar and a couple of others. But, yeah, that's that's very important. Um, Suresh Menon's in there, which is uh, important, the, the great yep. Indian writer interviewing Anil Kumble, who's, uh, you know, a bowling legend with a writing legend. Muhammad um, Amir talking to Saj Sadiq about his decision to retire. And the usual stable of columnists, uh, Lizzie Ammon, Izzy Westbury, Andy Miller, Andy Zaltzman. I just decided to abbreviate everyone's names there. You can't abbreviate the name, Adam. You can't do it. So for Adam Collins, I just have to say ads, adsy. I don't know. There's yeah, I mean, it's the work. sort of thing you get as a kid, isn't it? Ads or adsy, but it never really stuck. Thankfully, the far more original Colo was the, the prevailing mm. nickname at school. Or as I like to call you with the assistance of the accreditation department um, in South Africa, Colin Adams. <laughs> so look, that's, that's the magazine. The important thing uh, is that you can subscribe to it very cheaply. It's like 
10 quid or about 15 Australian dollars uh, when you subscribe to the digital edition. Uh, you can get that at that sweet discount by using the link which is in our show notes, bit.ly slash WCMTFW. Don't bother remembering that. It's in the little notes under the episode. Click the link. The uh, discount's built in. Go and get it. It's good. And that's not just for one edition, by the way. That's for six editions, a half a year subscription just for 15 Australian dollars or 10 quid. It's the best cricket magazine in the world. And I use the iPad version now, and it's it's really, really good. They've made a lot of improvements on that app in the last couple of years. So if you're on the fence and you, you don't really fancy reading a magazine in digital form, I assure you this is a good user experience. Bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. Get that sweet discount. The best cricket mag in the world. Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Neil Manthorpe, we like to check in with you about news in South Africa, which has not been great uh, on the whole over the last year or so. Uh, the, the short version, the Cliff Notes version is we've got the South African Cricket uh, Members Council that's the head of the provincial uh, organisations, largely ceremonial in theory. Then we had the board, which was about half made up of members of the Members Council as well. But the other members of the Members Council voted to sack the board, even though the ones who were on the board didn't. Then we had an interim board, which uh, the Members' Council was supposed to institute as a more permanent body with some changes, and they're refusing to do it, and uh, shit has hit the fan. Uh, Can you first tell us what the hell is going on? Try to give us a picture of what's happened in the last few days. So they implemented one or two of the smaller, less significant uh, recommendations, um, but didn't do any of the big stuff. And it's come back to bite them once again. So the current sports minister, Natiem Tetwa, appointed the interim board in October last year in order to implement the changes that should have been made over 10 years ago. They've come up with a draft memorandum of incorporation in which there will be a majority independent board chaired by an independent director, much as is the case in England, New Zealand, Australia, and now even India, so uh, the, the, the board, how, the Members Council, however, and that comprises the presidents of the 14 provincial unions. And just to, to rewind here, to give you an example of, of what they've done and what they stand to lose, one of the recommendations of the Nicholson report back in 2011 was that there should be a small payment for directors Mm-hmm. As a recognition of the fact that the amateur days of sports administration, cricket administration were over, they needed, he said, independent professional directors with skills that were suitable to run the game of cricket and they should be compensated for their time. An independent remuner- remunerations company, and I didn't know they existed, but there are companies <laughs> which, which, whose sole purpose is to, to tell other companies how much they should pay their employees. Now, they recommended 96,000 rand a year, which isn't much, divide it by whatever your, your currency is, 20 in the case of the pound. So it's not much, it's four and a half thousand pounds a year. So basically just over a thousand pounds for four meetings per year. And that was to cover, you know, preparation time, reading time, and just to, to as a recognition hmm. that the directors were professionals. A gesture almost. It's, well, but... Not so much in South Africa. Mm. Bear in mind that a, a beer still only costs 10 rand here. But in the intervening 10 years, the Members' Council voted to increase that 96000 a year to closer to 420000 which is a significant amount of money, let me tell you. And so many of the 
provincial presidents, the members' council, don't want to give us not just the prestige and the power. They certainly play a role, but it's the cash and the perks as well. Right. So they're very keen to hang on to their own positions as members of the board because they're they're not, presumably not being paid to be on the members' council, but they are being paid to be on the board. Yeah, but there's perks and privileges that come with the for the members council members who aren't on the board mm. so you know we you can see you can see the problem you have a board of directors which is overseen by the members council as the highest decision making body in cricket south africa the members council they oversee the board but the majority of the board is also on yep. the members council yep. so they're so, judge and jury yeah, a slight, slight conflict of interest, one might say. But what's been going on in the last week or so has basically been that the sports minister is threatening to withdraw Cricket South Africa's ability to put out a team that claims to be representing South Africa. Is that more or less what's going on? That's right, yeah. Um, he will intervene. He can do two things by law. One is withdraw funding. And that's completely inconsequential because it's less than a million rand a year mm -hmm. uh, and it's a billion rand industry. So, so that's inconsequential. But as you say, he can withdraw the awarding of official colours. In other words, right. the national team will no longer be representing South Africa. And that obviously constitutes government intervention in the running of the sport. But as I understand it, and this is really interesting, as I understand it, the ICC can't be proactive in suspending an affiliate or an associate mm. for government in intervention. They can't say, we don't like the look of what's going on there. They have to be reactive. In other words, Cricket South Africa in this case, or Zimbabwe cricket as it was 18 months ago when they were suspended, they have to say to the ICC, we are being interfered with. Right. So the Members' Council, in effect, will have to go to the ICC and say, the government is intervening in the running of our sport. Hmm. Then the ICC have to make a decision. But then that decision can be to ban South Africa from competing. So why would the Members' Council have any incentive to make that complaint as opposed to just continuing to try to push through and say, oh, well, we're the South African team, we don't care if you recognise us or not? <laughs> you see the problem. Mm. <laughs> you've spotted you've spotted the car crash before it actually happens, Jeff. Um, it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what the, the members' council do. At the moment, they have shown scant regard for the players and the health and safety and well-being of South African cricket. So um, it may well be that uh, that they decide to call the minister's bluff and appeal to the ICC and say that the, the minister is, uh, is, has interfered in, in the administration and the running of the game, therefore you have to suspend us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Cricket South Africa wouldn't be banned. The pro tiers, the national teams, wouldn't be banned as such. That implies, you know, long-term or, 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 or mm. in perpetuity. But the, the CSA's membership of the ICC could be suspended until right. the impasse is broken. But you know what? I mean, the, the men's team is supposed to go to the West Indies in June, um, uh, Ireland for six six games in July, Sri Lanka in August. They're supposed to go to India just before the T20 World Cup for another white ball series there. They've got a lot of cricket coming up. And then, of course, there's a T20 World Cup in November. And South Africa are suspended for even a, even three months, but six months, and it would be immediate bankruptcy because mm. the other thing is 
sponsorship revenue would dry up immediately and that's at an all-time low because of all of the the maladministration and the lack of governance but television revenue and here's the thing and i've spoken to the broadcasters they all say of course we wouldn't be interested in televising unofficial internationals Mm. contractually Cricket South Africa are bound to provide X number of, of international matches, and they have to be <laughs> official. Right. They, you can't say, uh, listen, we're, we're still going to play India, but they're going to be friendlies. Are you interested <laughs> in broadcasting them? Well, maybe you just have to bring in other teams. We'll, we'll, we'll have India play Sri Lanka in South Africa, and you can telecast that. So how is it that the 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 people on the Members Council who've, who've created this impasse, how is it that they're kind of how how vulnerable are they to being replaced you know what what recourse is there for anyone to try to get rid of them by via other means or are they impervious well i mean see they're all elected by their provinces mm. um for a four or five year term so um eventually they, those terms will will run out but what's happened in south african cricket uh, for for decades and decades is that uh, the, the the nepotism and cronyism that ex- and provincial bias, obviously, that exists mm. at domestic level means that uh, more often than not, um, it's a like-for-like replacement, G- right. occasionally hand-picked by the outgoing president. So we're not talking about a few bad apples. We're not talking about a bad crop at this particular time in South African cricket. We're talking about a rotten tree that mm. <laughs> needs to be cut down and, and another one planted. And And where do you think this might go i mean it, it it feels like a game of chicken at the moment the members council have they've gone past the initial deadline for them to sort something out that the sports minister gave them but you know how far can it go and how much damage can be done well um <laughs> i thought that we reached the end of the road at least six times in the, in the last uh, couple of years but yeah. as i said the tree needs to be cut down and and if that means <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say it, but I mean, if that means Cricket South Africa being suspended as an affiliate member of the ICC, then if that's the only way to get rid of the Members' Council then and to create a new structure, then I'm at that point now. I feel desperately sorry for the for the players, the men and women who, who make a living out of the game um, and whose careers and you know, uh, would be affected, desperately badly affected. But um, it is it is a game of chicken. You, you're absolutely right. Now, the Members' Council issued a statement this morning. So you've got the interim board issuing statements and then the Members' Council issuing counter-statements. The Members' Council issued a statement this morning which had one tiny glimmer of hope in it. Mm-hmm. They said, we do not believe the situation is unresolvable. But they then went on to give about 15 examples of of exactly why it would be unresolvable mm. but i think that you know the minister has said that he's going to go ahead and uh, and intervene and you know clear the decks and and restructure cricket as much as the law will allow him to do he also said that he would start that process next week so we have another week of everyone sitting on tenterhooks and just worrying about a about the future, I'm brushing up on my rugby skills because the Lions are coming here, and I think I might have, I might be in for a career change. I have to jump sports, and then the other 
deeply sad story that came out just north of you in, in Zimbabwe, Heath Streak being banned for eight years for enabling corruption match-fixing while being a coach, it, which just seems an extraordinary sort of thing given that he was one of the supposedly one of the few people of integrity in Zimbabwe cricket um, through that period when they were competitive, when, when he was the the kind of spiritual leader of that team almost. Um, it, it felt desperately sad that he was the person who was involved with this sort of thing. It was a desperate shock, uh, absolutely desperate shock. I, I was, um, I, I am close to, to Heath. Um, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time with him when he was Zimbabwe national coach. I was helping out in the media department there and and I spent a lot of t- time with him. Well, I, I find it quite difficult to talk about um, and I've turned down a number of uh, requests for, for interviews and chats and, and that kind of thing. Um, all I would say, two things, is that he remains a, a, a kind and, and empathetic and, and generous person and the second is that he has admitted the offences. I find it really hard to 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 stomach that he attempted to get rid of evidence um destroying sim cards and wiping his phone and and initially denying everything but i can tell you the icc have known about it or the icc's anti-corruption unit have known about it for years and uh, i mean going way back to the beginning of 2019 when which is when i first heard the the, the first rumors so you know he's he has admitted the offense there He's he's always liked a bit of cash. He's always had a weakness. It reminds me of, of Hansi Cronier and his self-confessed love of money. Um, now, there were reasons. I mean, he's, uh, he's uh, him and his father run a, a, an enormous game farm just outside of Bulawayo with enormous costs. And let me just tell you, Heath has not been coaching for the love of it. Um, he's mm. uh, needed the income, I can assure you. And so eight an eight-year ban, it's going to have enormous repercussions and consequences for 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 him his father dennis um, the the family all their all their staff their workers i mean he has made a catastrophic mistake and he's going to pay immensely for it and he knew the consequences i mean he was coping he coached in the Afghanistan Premier League, the Indian Premier League, the Bangladesh Premier League. He's been through umpteen hundred safety and security and corruption, anti-corruption. Um, so uh, briefings, he knew, he knew the consequences. Mm. He knew the risks that he was taking. And, you know, he's going to have to live with that. Thank you for talking to us about it. It's, you know, it's obviously very emotional. Well, yeah, it, uh, it's, it, it is, it is. Um, but you know what? We we all support the system, don't don't we? I mean, uh, yeah, I can't, can't imagine that anybody in this room thinks that uh, being banned for, for taking part in any aspect of corruption is a bad thing. And, mm. and <laughs> just say one other thing as well. A few people have said to me, you know, he never actually fixed a game. He never mm. actually fixed a game. As if that's somehow a lesser crime. It's like saying, I didn't shoot him. Mm. Okay, I hired the guy who did, but but I didn't shoot him. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> we we hiring a killer's... Uh, Maybe that's an unfair analogy. I think it probably is inappropriate analogy. But do you, you know what I mean. He, as you said, you used the word enabling right at the beginning. 
Yeah, and th- and that's that's what it comes down to the uh, the position of responsibility, and then potentially, you know, leading people who are younger and stupider and, and more vulnerable to do things that are going to damage their lives as well. Yeah, and and um, if if uh, if just one young player. Uh, is able to recover from the inspiration, uh, the 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 loss of inspiration that that Streak provided, and is able to learn and and be scared, knowledgeably scared about the consequences of uh, of getting involved in the nefarious world of underground betting. And then then some good will have come of it. But at the moment, it doesn't feel like much good's come come of it. But it's the right thing. Yeah, yeah, it never does. Neil, I know you've got to run, but uh, thank you very much for joining us again on The Final Word. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thank you to Neil Manthorpe for his quite remarkable insight, not just on South African cricket. And I, I should say, his blog is so good at the moment. Manners on Cricket, please subscribe to it if you want to Keep abreast of what's going on over there. They're not like long essay length bits either. He when when something happens, he drops a note out there and, and keeps you across it. We might put a, a link to Manners on cricket in the show notes this week, and also yeah on Heath Streak. I didn't I knew that he was friends with him, but I didn't realise that um, there was that sort of far deeper connection. So thanks for Manners for being willing to share that with us. And Jeff, from very heavy terrain to far lighter, time for a little bit of nerd Nerd Pledge, the game that you all know how to play, everybody who's watching this show, because you're all on the Patreon page. This is how it works. You are nice people, and so you help us make the show by financially contributing, but doing so not with a normal amount of currency, but with a very specific amount of currency. And you know that it means something about cricket, that number, but we don't know what it means until we do know what it means. We have to work out what it means. This is the challenge. This is the sleuthing that happens. So to give you an example, for instance, you might be a person named Sam Nemza, and you might decide to send us at the show $6.09. And then we would have to think, what does 609 mean in a cricketing context? And as it happens, that example is exactly what has happened this week because 609 is the number that Sam has sent to you, Adam. And what do you think it means? Right. So, uh, Jeff, you know that I'm into, I was going to say, you know, I'm into mirroring. That, would, that, might, that, might, uh, that might give a certain impression. I, I'm into um, events mirroring each other in mm-hmm. the great game of cricket. Michael Clark would the say. Great game. Our great game. Our great, great game. game. Our great game of cricket. Our great game of cricket. If if somebody asked me, I, I would I would consider my if the right person were to ask me, I would consider my answer. So because of that, I'm going to skip over the story I was going to tell you about James Foster, the great Essex stumper who uh, played seven mm. test matches between 2001 and 2002, the best keeper of his generation, and got out LBW to Steve War at the MCG. In like 2000. Good knowledge. Good knowledge. Also caught Steve Waugh off Steve Harmison, but didn't appeal uh, in that crazy fourth innings on the final day. So he was the 609th English Test cricketer. That's why I could have Mm -hmm. told you about him. But instead, I'm going to initially start with um, two bore draws. Uh, So this is when the score was made. 609 has been made twice in Test cricket, once by India against Zimbabwe in Nagpur in 2000 in 156 painstaking overs. And once Heath Streak was playing in that game. He almost certainly was. And once by 
New Zealand against the West Indies in Dunedin in 2013. In both cases, mm-hmm. the innings were declared. They went big. Roscoe Taylor made a double turn in one. Sachin Tendulkar made a, a double in the other. What I like about this is that in both instances, the, the opposition, Zimbabwe and, and West Indies, had to follow on. And in both cases, mm-hmm. uh, they made almost exactly the same score. They made 503 and 507 when following on in the third innings of those two matches. So yuck, hmm. yuck games, and they both end up being draws, but nice and close on, on both fronts. Figures, though, bowling figures, 2004 in Mumbai. Oh. There's the, there's oh. the pup. There's the I didn't even think of this. Did did I just channel that from the number without consciously having? Well, the that's what that's. I, I, I said it to begin with a great game of cricket, knowing that we were going to talk about Michael Clark. Right. And then you, did, you, okay. you, you took yeah. it and ran with it yeah. and did it well. Yeah. But he took six for nine from six point two overs in the Mumbai Test of 04. Australia were eventually set one hundred and seven, and we're all out for ninety three in a on a dust bowl, a thriller, a two-day test match, I reckon it might have been as well. They were his first test wickets. He only took 25 further wickets in in 111 further matches over the course mm. of 11 more years. And that also mirrors the other six for nine taken in international cricket, that by Gargi Banerjee, who was an Indian seamer, who took six for nine against New Zealand in a test match in 1985 at Cuttack, in the space of 9.4 overs. But she only took two further test wickets in six more test matches and for eight all up. So of her eight test wickets, six came in one burst. And with Clark, it was six out of 31. But yeah, I like the fact that the two times that that analysis has been recorded in in, in Mm. test match cricket, it's been from... It's been from bowlers who didn't do an awful lot apart from their one day in the sun. So we've got the the 609s, uh, which marry up with a 503 and a 507 following on. And mm-hmm. then we've got the two six for nines, which are from Michael Clark and from Gargi Banerjee, the Indian seamer, who really only had that one day. And that, that's, yeah. that, that, that's, that's my offering for 609. I like it. I, I happen to know for reasons that Michael Clark's career bowling average was about 38.5. By the end, so after that first bowling innings, averaging 1.5 runs per wicket um, and then blew it out to 38, <laughs> was waste, wasted opportunity. The other number, with the second number, we're doing two numbers. This is how it works. Joseph Brookshaw, uh, very generously, has dropped in $18.84. Maybe they're pounds because I think Joseph has an English uh, relationship. Eighteen dot eight four nonetheless. And uh, thank you, Joseph. And the clue, there is a clue that comes with this that says the decimal point separates two unrelated-ish numbers, although the numbers are related to the same player. So the previous player that we talked about in relation to a Joseph Brookshaw clue was Stephen Harmison, who does as it happens. If we're looking for 18 and 84 being two different numbers, Steve Harmison has a highest one-day batting score of 18 and a T20 international batting strike rate of 84. <laughs> How do you like them apples? He also took 184 list day wickets. Uh, 184 is a number that contains both 18 and 84 together at last. Hmm? Um, but I don't think it's that. Nor do I. There was a, a, <laughs> a, 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 I, I, did, I did then wonder, had anyone made 18 from 84 balls? in international cricket. Yes, they have MJK Smith, the England captain who I kind of didn't really know existed until I looked him up a few months ago um, because I hadn't heard much about him at all. Made that in Auckland. Jeff Miller, future England selector, wasn't he? Yes, Um, he was. 
made that in Sydney in 79 and Aravinda De Silva at the MCG in 95. They all made 18 from 84 balls in a test match. Uh, nobody has made it in a one-day international or T20 international cricket, thankfully for them, because if they had, they should have been fired immediately. 18 from 84 balls. So... That's not related to... Joseph also said we may be able to get this with the previous clue he gave last month. But looking back through the messages, there's no clue. But there is a message where he's saying that he liked that Dean Jones show because it, it made him think about Kevin Peterson and their their um, relationships with authority, I suppose. So I thought, could it be a Dean Jones or a Kevin Peterson link? Dean Jones debuted in 1984. We're looking for 18s and 84s. And he did have a real thing about the 18th over of a T20 match. He always used to bang on about how if you win the 18th over, you win the game. That's where that's the crux. It's the 18th over. That's what it's all about. So 84 and 18, two numbers unrelated to each other but related to the same person uh, with Dean Jones, maybe. Or could it relate to Kevin Peterson? Well, all right, let's have a look at this. Kevin Peterson, we need 18 and we need 84. Kevin Peterson batted 181 times in Test cricket, making 8,181 runs. That sequence going 1-8-1-8-1-8-1. There's no 84 in there, but there's a lot of 18s. As for an 84, when he made the century at the Oval in 2005, the score was 158. Don't worry about that. But 18 and 84, 1-8-8-4, he made it off 187 balls meaning it was a strike rate of 84. Huh? 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 You see? See what I mean? You with me? Uh, probably none of those things are the answer. However, you can let me know, Joseph. You, if I'm uh, anywhere vaguely near the truth, you can drop me a message and nudge me closer uh, to the golden light of realisation. And that is how we play Nerd Pledge. Fantastic. Well, I think you've done well there. And Joseph, for that generous contribution, that is very much appreciated. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. As we said, we've got a number of our patrons uh, chatting away in the uh, in the Zoom box right now, which is kind of cool. I, I see here that Glenfin Keld has observed that uh, Kieran Carlson, who, who made the, the twin centuries for Glamorgan on the weekend, the 22-year-old, the Welshman I referred to, played for Hampton Cricket Club um, last season in Melbourne. So nice connection there with him. There, so we'll keep an eye on him. He'll become a final word favourite, I reckon. And there's also some chat around the Gabba being demolished. Jeff, that was good news today. Um, not just because the the Gabba needs demolishing, but because it's going to be rebuilt, a massive rebuild, a huge rebuild mm. uh, for the Olympic Games in uh, 2032. So, I mean, we're talking about the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles. The cycle after that, it's. I'm not sure if it's mm. been. Has it been confirmed that Brisbane are hosting those Olympics? No, they're bidding for it. Yeah, but yeah. it's but it's a fait accompli because no, one no else other is bidder. bidding for yeah, it. So, in all probability, <laughs> well, it may very well be the case that cricket gets that the that, that ramp up the from um, from the 2028 Games in LA mm. is the exhibition sport, and then gets formally invited to join in Australia at Brisbane. Oh. Be kind of cool. Tim Payne should be the ambassador for the campaign. You know, I can't wait to get you to the Gabba. Everybody, <laughs> welcome in 2032. Can't wait to see you all there. That's the way to do it. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be at the Gabba because I'd imagine that they're putting a big investment in there in order to make it the stadium, right? I mean, it, I, I don't see mm. why it wouldn't be the Olympic Stadium and thus they need to find other cricket venues, but they've got now the, the Alan Look. Borderfield and the Ian Healy Field and that's where the Sheffield Shield final was played this weekend, Jeff. The Mr. Sheffield final. Yes, the Mr. Sheffield final, Jeff. Uh, we were mm. going to be 
having a conversation with Jack Wildermuth about the Sheffield Shield final today. That hasn't quite come to fruition. But we are going to tell you how Queensland won the game there at AB Field. And we are also going to mention in passing that uh, Fran Drescher, or Fran Fine, as her character was known in The Nanny, is on Cameo for 375 quid. I noted over the weekend, which is Mm. the very same amount that I paid a scalper before the Lord's Test match of 2005 to get myself in on the first day. That, to me, feels like it has to be something that you and I waste some money on and get Fran to join us on the final word at some point. I, I can't see any other way. I think it's also worth pointing out that with inflation, Fran Drescher would actually be significantly cheaper than the amount that you paid in 2005. You know, a, a real bargain. And so, yeah, look, if we can... Mate, this is this is what Patreon needs to be paying for. This is what our next campaign needs to be about. Could well we be. need to c- collect the money. But, you know, we, we've got to get her on the show. Some people have been looking... Um, you know, looking for links. Uh, we, we got... Um, we got a message about this just before, actually. I think it was from Matthew Jones on the public page. Matthew Jones, was it from you on the public page? Yes. Matthew Jones is in the chat, so here we are. (laughs) Yeah. I think I might have dropped it in for story time this weekend, but you know what? It doesn't matter. Let's do it now. What do you say? You got a joke, use it, play it. Spend it. Spend it when you get it. Um, Yes, Matthew Jones said he was curious to see whether there are any links between Fran Drescher and cricket that we could use to get her on the show. One link is that she attended Hillcrest High School in Jamaica Hills, Queens, New York, along with Ray Romano, uh, and that Hillcrest High have a boys and a girls cricket team playing in the public schools athletic league. Whether they had that cricket team when Fran Tresher was there is another question, but if they did, maybe she has fond memories of that cricket team and will agree to come on the show on that basis. We'll find out. Uh, I think there's another bit in, in Matthew's email where he screenshotted from a book where both Fran Tresher and Shane Warne believe in aliens and they've mm. and and the passages run side by side in the book yeah. in question. So And tell me in that case there is Zero possibility that Shane Warne did not hit up Fran Drescher on Instagram at some point and be like, hey, I noticed we're both in this book. We should grab a drink um, and like about 83 of her historical photos. <laughs> Got to be in it to win it, Warney, as we always see. What was it? It was Margot Robbie last year. Don't ask, it? Liking, don't get. Yeah, liking, and, liking and commenting on every photo. Got to be in it to win yeah. it. Should we talk about the final? We should. Um, that's a rhetorical a question, bit. which I'm going to answer. It was at Allen Borderfield, and Queensland won comprehensively by an innings and 43 runs. Uh, New South Wales all out for 143. Curtis Patterson, the stand-in captain, top scored with 43. Sean Abbott, 23, was the second highest scorer. Michael Nisa started his season with a five-wicket bag on the first day of the Shield and, and finishes it with one as well, five for 27. And Jack Wildermuth, who we were looking forward to talking to today, but might do in the winter, took four for 21. Queen Queensland in reply, 389 across 149 and a half overs. Manus Labashain, Jeff, 192 from 353. The next highest score in the entire match was 46, which puts that score into perspective. We'll come back to Manus in a moment. Nathan Lyon and Sean Abbott uh, took seven wickets between them. And then in the second innings, New South Wales all out for 213. Uh, Hughes was the highest score with 40 and Swepson. Bartlett and Doggett picked up three wickets each, so it was a real team effort from the, the five Queensland bowlers. And it was all about Marnus Labashain, who now has made, I worked out yesterday, 3,959 runs in two years since he arrived at Glamorgan two years ago. So he's essentially played three seasons in that space of time. And he's hit 14 centuries in 38 games at an average of 683 uh, and he's obviously on the way back now to play for Glamorgan. He's on the flight probably right now, 
post-Shield final to be available next week after quarantine. So, um, yeah, what, what a run he's on. And judging by those who watched it, he didn't hit a ball in the air and drove New South Wales into the ground. Yeah, extraordinary performance, really. And, and I guess you can look at the, I guess, the way that some of the zip went out of that New South Wales attack after such a long... Summer, you know, Lyon, Hazelwood, Stark doing so much bowling through the test matches and played a lot of, the, you know, all of the state cricket through the, the back half. Bowled really well in the 50-over final to restrict WA and make sure they won that. But um, when it came to actual wicket-taking, that, that wasn't really possible. And, and that AB field deck is very often pretty dead, you know. Um, you, you obviously wasn't there to assess it. But it's not unusual that, that it's... Um, a bit of a shit heap for bowlers. Yeah, and it reinforces what a great performance it was from Queensland first up. I mean, it was there was not a blade of grass on that strip based on the photos we saw on the on the social media feeds. And the fact that Nisa and, and Wildermuth were able to bowl them out in the space of forty odd overs or whatever it is was, was mm. quite the effort on that first day. And then doing so again, Swepson, important to him to finish his season with wickets. He'll certainly be part of the, the conversation next summer. I'm, I'm sure that um, that he'll be in the test squad the whole way through alongside Nathan Lyon. And, I mean, I doubt they'll play two spinners uh, against England, but the very fact that he is... Um, asserted himself this year, Jeff, or this Shield season as very much the next spinner. Like, there's no debating it anymore. There's no other spinner in the country who is being talked up as Lyon's understudy. It is the mm. Queensland league spinner. Yeah, that, that's... That's the case, and, and that's a body of work over a period of time. But I, I think what, what stood out most to me from that game was the sense that it mattered. Like, they had a, a really good crowd in at AB Field, and they were Sell really out. into it. And, and watching, you know, Manus coming off, giving the, the big ovation all the way around around the ground, he was getting enough applause to deserve that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just sort of hurry up and hop off because, yeah, they were, they were there. They were, they were living it and, and loving it. And I guess for Queensland, they had that strange experience that when they won the Shield a few years ago um, and having, you know, Matt Renshaw and Joe Burns pulled out and of the celebrations and put on the plane to South Africa pretty much straight after the game, you know, and, and then everything with how flat that match in Johannesburg was, that would have taken the wind out of um, the sails a bit. So, yeah, it was sort of nice to see that they were actually able to enjoy one a bit more. Yeah, I think that's right. We we spoke to Matt Renshaw about that on the podcast a couple of years ago, the idea of sort of finishing this important competition. And, yeah, the, the crowd at AB Field, I think they, they, they had a sellout, a COVID-restricted sellout. I think 2,900 people were permitted to go in there and there were queues outside for the Sheffield Shield. How brilliant is that? And Marnus made some comments um, after the game that it was the, the most special ovation he's ever received on a cricket field. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Mm. I mean, so those that debate the merit of the Shield final can refer to that. It means an awful lot to the players. And Jeff, looking back at the season in total now that it's over, yeah, it's finished in mid to late April and that's unusual. Uh, and I, I don't suppose they'll be doing that again anytime soon. But I think it worked really well. I thought the, the block of games at the start given that primacy. And yes, you almost need to do them in Adelaide to have three grounds in such close proximity to one another. Maybe they'll consider that again. I know that with bubbles as they are, I mean, who knows, mm-hmm. they might have to do something like that. But even in a post-COVID environment, if they were able to get the players together and have it almost carnival style for the first month of the season, it certainly drew so much attention to it. I felt like cricket watchers, perhaps passive cricket watchers, were more invested in the shield. And that continued mm-hmm. through to the end of the season where evidently a lot of people were following it on television and radio through the week. Yeah. You could easily do it in Sydney as well. They've got about six different 
first-class grounds they could use yep. in Sydney, you know, none of which are, are famed for, you know, producing much other than a lot of runs, but still, um, you could do it in Melbourne. One at the G, one at the Juno, and, and <laughs> let's bring uh, let's bring Shield Cricket back to Princes Park. Oh. It hasn't been the same since get a oh. drop-in wicket at Princes Park. Be still Park. my beating heart. I think the last time Victoria <laughs> played at Princes Park, and someone will correct me in the comments, probably Glenn Finkeld, I reckon it was a one-dayer in 1996, and I think Ian Harvey did well. Uh, I reckon that's the last time there was a long time since it's been a cricket ground, of course. They play next door at Princess Park number two. But uh, I saw they're, they're pulling down the Hawthorne stand there, which breaks my heart a little bit. That's no longer going to be there, the stand that Hawthorne paid for all those years ago. Anyway, fairly big digression from the Shield final. But it happened. Mm. And Queensland are champions for the ninth time since the summer of 94-95 when they finally broke the duck in that competition. And asserting themselves as the most dominant team uh, over the last few years and Labuschagne's reputation continues to be enhanced. The fact that he's coming over here to play a full county season, more or less, I mean, I suppose he'll he'll miss this game. I I reckon he'll be good for round four if he gets his five-day test and release, which they're permitted to do. Cost him a bit more money, but I don't think that'll be an mm. issue if they can get him on the park for the fourth game. That means he'll he'll have a, a lot of four-day cricket over here and, and who's to say he'll be stopped? He's been just extraordinary over the last two years as a queenslander i'm, I'm very proud and uh <laughs> just looking forward to kicking back with um king wally lewis for a forex off the wood the breakfast <laughs> creek hotel uh bannerman time let's finish with a bannerman i say only because and i wasn't planning on doing this but it was a pretty bonkers bannerman this weekend wasn't there we received a note from matthew mm. jones and from colin bunn in colin's case uh he had a bit more detail it was in his local league there in Arendale and Wharfdale Senior Cricket League, the third 11 conference, mm. which is... A, Two of the great Dales, honestly. If, you, if you're doing a top 10 of Dales, they're both in there. I have no idea where Horseforth Hall Park Cricket Club is, nor Oatley Cricket Club, but Oatley were chasing 201, and they were all out for 13 in 8.1 overs. And out of that 13... The opening batter, who is the good mate of my 17-year-old son, says Colin, Jack Brady, made 10 of the 13, Jeff, which without having done the sums, and I might do it while you're talking, that's very much a batterman, isn't it? That's got to hit. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, 10 yeah, out of 13 70%. equals 76.9%. So just this weekend, on Sunday indeed, uh, we saw that happen for the Otley Cricket Club, uh, all out their third 11 for 13 in 8.1 overs. Looking here, it looks like Jack faced 20 deliveries out of the 8.1 overs. He struck two boundaries, which naturally were the only two boundaries in the innings because only added three more runs. And there were, in total... He, he faced ducks. twenty balls out of eight. Over. So he faced twenty balls out of forty-eight. He really did did, did some work. He gobbled did. up a fair bit of the strike. He did protected his teammates. Unfortunately, he was dismissed. Otherwise, it would have been good for him to have carried the bat. When was he out here? Yeah. He was the. Oh, I hope fact, he was first he had, out. That'd no, be funnier. I think that's this might even be better. He was seventh out for thirteen when the score for ten. Sorry, when they were thir- yeah. So they didn't score a run after he was dismissed. So it was th- <laughs> thirteen for seven, thirteen for eight, thirteen for nine. And all out four thirteen. So thank you uh, to Colin and to Matthew for bringing that to our attention. And that that might be, I reckon, the right place to win this ramshackle edition of the final word. I'm not sure it was um, because we had a studio audience and we were um, doing it a bit differently than we might normally. But um, there is uh, there's been a lot covered. 
there will mm-hmm. be a lot of edits before this goes to air, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how the YouTube part of that's going to work, but I wish you well, Ashton, in pulling that together. And as I do, wish you well, DC. The, the final version's going to be like 17 minutes long. <laughs> it's incredible. Here's the thank yous. Uh, I want to thank... Seabus Super for having supported us over the last couple of years. I think we started our association with them in May 2019, so nearly two full years with the mighty seabussuper.com.au forward slash the final word. Learn more information about your superannuation. Get a product disclosure statement from there. And of course, you know that past performance isn't a reliable indicator on future performance, as I failed to mention earlier in the show. Uh, thank you to Wisdom Cricket Monthly, who have also been with us for a very long period of time. Their new magazine is out on Thursday the 22nd of April it is a belter based on uh, what I've seen so far bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW get yourself a cheap cheap subscription $15 or 10 quid for six editions of WCM the best cricket mag in the world bad producer productions Jeff we are on their label and it is lovely to be on their label for they make other great podcasts they do they make other shows they're about other things they don't have any other cricket shows if they signed another cricket show we would kill them Um, (laughs) but (laughs) we're not we're not jealous we're not jealous we just we just you know we have limits it's kind of um, we have an understanding it's an odd thing when when we put out greatest season that was series about cricket and periodically, it's overtaken us on the iTunes charts, and mm. I and I feel I feel odd about that. I quite like it when Jay Quinnell yeah. is it and Bad Producer have got one and two, but it is a yeah. bit odd when the other show, which is principally about football, overtakes us on the cricket charts. I'm not sure how I feel about it, that. It, it's a bit like bowling to your brother again, isn't it? You yeah, know, you're like, yep. glad to see him doing well. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back we come. Uh, yeah, thanks to DC who edits the show and Ashton who also edits the show. If anyone else wants to edit the show, we can probably use more editors. <laughs> um, there's a lot of work for them to do. Uh, and thanks to our live studio audience Hooray. here at this filming of of the nanny slash uh, the final word. Uh, it's been uh, wonderful to have your smiling faces on the screen while we record this show. We will do this again. And if you want to become a patron of uh, the final word, patreon.com forward slash the final word, uh, the support we've received through that platform, especially since March last year when the pandemic started, has made all the difference. And it's the reason why we're able to make this program twice a week. We'll be back with uh, the Glenn Maxwell mini app on Wednesday. Story time will be coming out on Saturday. Our IPL speed round is on YouTube each Monday and Friday and that is it so thanks to everybody for listening thank you Jeff for all of your work as always and we'll say goodbye here Bye. you know what I meant I had to go a 